Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to speak to Susan Shaheen. Susan, welcome. It's great to meet you, Gunnar. Susan is a professor at UC Berkeley, professor of civil environmental engineering at UC Berkeley, also co-director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center and a chair of the Transportation Research Board for the National Academy of Sciences. So you really know what you're talking about in this area. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned before we were starting recording um, how our podcast series came about and that we basically have hosted the Wunder Mobility Summit. And now we couldn't do it last year because of Corona. And we want to meet people on air that we would have loved to have in discussion and, and have on, on stage. And you are one of the people that I've been uh, reading about and following because you are describing not only what's happening and why, but also what will likely happen going forward. And you are talking about the different parts of shared mobility and potential adoption for autonomous and so on. For people in our audience that are mostly from the field and that have seen a lot of these things maybe in their day-to-day -day work, are working on them, what is something that has been surprising to you in the coming years that you think that really wasn't expected? Well, COVID was, I think, a bit of a surprise to, to many people. And the impacts on the shared mobility ecosystem have been quite interesting. One might expect that with a pandemic that people would be less comfortable being in close proximity with others. So the devastating impacts that we've seen across the globe to public transit, buses, rail, I think are very make a lot of sense. But what we've seen is, is a lot of interest in shared micromobility systems. And so that's kind of the newer terminology for shared bikes and shared scooters. Mm -hmm. So with the pandemic, we saw a lot of people gravitating towards these modes. And across the globe, a lot of interest in promoting slow and healthy streets. So the mm -hmm. idea of giving more rights-of-way access to these types of devices. So With this particular space of shared micromobility, even before the pandemic, we were seeing a great rise in the number of people riding and using the shared scooter systems. And so that, that's continued along with popularity of a more dockless variety. So when we first started to talk about active modes of transportation in the context of shared mobility, we were talking about a lot of these public bike sharing systems, mm -hmm. station-based systems where you could go either from point to point, so a one-way trip, or you could take a round trip. That was the dominant mode of bike sharing. And then we started to see more and more the dockless variety coming in that's more controlled with a geofencing model. So we've, we've also seen a lot of focus in that dockless area, and it It has also grown in popularity, particularly with the advent of more e-bike technology. So I'd say that those have been some new trends. The other thing that I would say that happened 
largely because of COVID, was a big uptake in what we would call courier network services. So this is the idea of allowing a shared delivery or a ride, so a ride for cargo itself. And some of the larger transportation network companies like Lyft and Uber pivoted when it was more challenging to convince people to get into a car with a stranger or they had to just stop their pooled services altogether, they started to see a big appetite or uptick in services like Uber Eats. So Mm -hmm. shared mobility continues to uh, change and evolve and I think be rather dynamic in the context of external forces. Can you help us to by by giving also some some words and some taxonomy to how you are looking at shared mobility, the different products, different aspects? Because you already touched on several different dimensions. You mentioned okay vehicle types. Now we have kind of a new arrival of very light electric vehicles. Then you mentioned the the docking station kind of model, the the, the dockless model, and then even there's people transport, but also shared mobility around moving goods, and sometimes some of the players trying to play or successfully playing in both. When people mm-hmm. say shared mobility, how do you break things down so, so that you give some, can give some structure to, to everything that's going on? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So shared mobility is like an umbrella term for the shared use of a vehicle, a bicycle, or other mode that enables people to have short-term access to transportation on an as-needed basis. As I noted in my very early comments, I consider public transit to be one of the core modes of shared mobility. It's not just sort of these innovative IT-infused modes, but it also includes more legacy types of systems that have been with us for a long time. A taxi is a shared mode. A pedicab is a shared mode. A jitney is a shared mode. The idea of carpooling with a friend is a shared mode. And a lot of interest in shared mobility, I think, has come about because of the information technology, the electronic wireless communication systems. Now, as you noted, Gunnar, the the new form factors, the electrification. But shared mobility has been with us for decades. And so when we talk about it, There's different ways to think about categorizing it. So for example, you have car sharing, you have scooter sharing, you have bike sharing. And these are services that enable vehicle sharing. And then you have carpooling, vanpooling. So these older forms of ride sharing, you have the more on-demand ride services like the transportation network companies, microtransit, for example, and they facilitate the sharing of a passenger ride. And then lastly, you have this third category that I mentioned as part of my comments regarding the pandemic, which we call courier network services that allow for the sharing of a delivery ride or giving a ride to cargo. So that, I think, provides you with an umbrella of what is is happening within inside the shared mobility ecosystem. That's super interesting. We'd like, we'd like to pause here for a second because two categories where I think pretty familiar with most people would have probably mentioned them in the beginning, vehicle sharing versus ride hailing. So shared mobility, either you unlock any type of vehicle, we can talk about it, many different, also interesting new form factors coming up, or you somehow use 
an app to get, get a driver. And then also very many different variants. Just either that's a community driver, kind of carpooling solution, professional driver, maybe a shared kind of shuttle setup. Maybe it's just for you. But then in addition to vehicle sharing writing, you put two other categories into this bucket of shared mobility, which not everybody expects. And, and one was public transit. So some people in the field, they are already thinking like this anyhow. But even yesterday, I was on a, uh, an, an event. There's a there's, um, um, federal election campaign in Germany, basically. And so they're like sending people out to basically uh, discuss the parties that discuss. So what's our policy in, in mobility and so on? And CDU, the current governing party, had an, had an event there yesterday. And they don't see public, they don't think of public transport as also a shared mobility and how close these are together at the moment. But you're basically saying, Conceptually, if I take a 10,000 feet approach, this is also shared mobility. It's been around forever, but it's kind of the same um, structurally. And then you put uh, career network services into this. So what do you see in terms of A, companies providing these, and then maybe cities de dealing with these? Do you see companies expanding into these different fields, or is it more specialized champions in each and, and governments may be dealing with paying a lot more attention to some areas than, than to others. How is that evolving from a business side, from a government side, dealing with these different topic areas? Right. So to start out, to just react, Gunnar, to your comments about being surprised that I would consider public transit so as part of shared mobility. Now, this has been, I think, a, a long discourse. I wouldn't say it's a debate mm -hmm. so much as a discourse around a lot of people who've, who've been working in shared mobility for decades, like myself. And I think a lot of us feel that it's the sharing effect, right, that we're really focused on. It's not the technology so much. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that people are either sequentially sharing. So I take a bike, you take a bike, or we concurrently share. Mm -hmm. We share the same vehicle. When we think about if that's the objective of shared transport, why would you exclude, say, legacy modes that have been with mm -hmm. us for a long time, merely because they, they weren't born out of the private sector or information technology? So... I, I do think a more holistic view is really important here, particularly when we think about those outcomes that this, the second part of your comment to me was related to, is what's the role of the public sector? What's the role of the private sector? Do these complement one another or do they compete against each other? Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of a shared mobility ecosystem is that you actually create an ecosystem with complementarity. Yes, there's going to be areas where there's competition, but an ecosystem, a healthy ecosystem, has a lot of different types of modes in it that are filling different spaces. And so what we're hearing and seeing is the lines between what was public and what was private are blurring. Yes. And Can you give an example of that? What, what do you mean concretely? Why, why uh, I, think, I, I think a perfect example of this is microtransit. Mm -hmm. So microtransit has been with us. It's another one of those modes that's been with us for a really long time. It has a lot of names. So you might be more familiar with terms like Jitney, mm -hmm. Dollar Van. Mm -hmm. you, you might be more familiar with a term like paratransit. 
Uh, I think early on you mentioned shuttle to me. Microtransit is is kind of like that shared micromobility term. It's sort of the updated term that implies perhaps more on-demand flexibility, but not necessarily, but definitely a strong core of information technology, right? And we've been tracking microtransit, which hasn't been getting as much attention as modes like shared micromobility with e-scooters and being everywhere around the globe, right? What we're seeing here in the U.S., just a couple of years ago, we did basically a census and found at a time when people thought maybe there were only a couple handfuls of these projects, we actually tracked 62 of them. And what was fascinating about them is that they were occurring all over the U.S. It was not a bi-coastal phenomenon, which a lot of some of these shared modes are where you mm-hmm. you know you typically see the big bike sharing systems on the coast not necessarily in the middle of the country which, or which the year was this if I, if I may ask which year was this when you did the microtransit um, survey and you found uh, about 60 projects in that, I would say we published that that study uh, three p's in a in a mod maybe uh, 2018 mm-hmm. I can so get likely a lot more by now Already. Mm. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, the, but what I wanted to tell you is that when you map them in the mm. US context, they were showing up not just mm. in a bi coastal kind of pattern, which mm-hmm. implies urban, right? They were showing up all over the country. And then when we started to do analysis around them, we found that in more suburban or less dense areas, they were being operated by the public transit agency itself. They were the front end. They Mm -hmm. were potentially, because it it varied, providing the vehicles, the drivers, or both. And Mm -hmm. they were blending with the private sector and that the back Mm -hmm. end of it, the routing, the billing, reservation components were being offered by a private company. So a partnership. Mm -hmm. We also saw in a lot of the early versions of microtransit that were promoted through the mobility on demand sandbox of USDOT, Mm -hmm. more of a coastal phenomenon in which it was being outsourced Mm -hmm. from the public sector to the private sector. So what I, I would say that we're tracking is the blending of public and private and the blurring of those lines between what actually is a bus <laughs> or a shuttle? And is that the public sector or is that the private sector? And I think what that is a hallmark of is the desire for the public sector to continue to be able to assure the public good. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think, came about as many of the public transit operators said, why can't we innovate? We could partner to innovate, but we can be the major force behind this, the label of the service, and we can assure there's no surge pricing. We can assure that people with disabilities are served, that there is no discriminatory practices. We can we can have the data that we have sometimes struggled to get from the private sector. So I think moving forward, we're going to see more of the blurring of lines between what is public and what is private. 
And as the public sector steps in more and says, we want a partnership with you, but we want a partnership with you in a way that we can assure that we have complementary services, not services that are competing with one another. Super interesting and, and super clear. And I think there's really an evolution happening over the last few years of kind of, kind of more, more the early days. Maybe this was seven, eight years ago in Europe, maybe five, six years when maybe Uber was one of the forerunners, of course, launching sometimes against the will of um, local um, government and then kind of more uh, wild west mentality and some cities being kind of stunned and unclear on how to react. And then kind of a first wave of let's formulate some regulation, but then it seems like a second wave is let's, let's not just set maybe some boundaries for whoever's operating here, but get a bit more visionary about how we would like to use this, what's now available. And then how can we mm, maybe set more granular regulation or somehow even design something that we then bring onto the market to say, who would be interested in, in running this and kind of maybe tendering some things out. We've seen that traditionally in Germany around like a part of vehicle sharing for a long time, which was um, bike sharing, like the leading bike sharing systems over here, basically tendered out by the city, where they would say, we want it to be probably station-based and in all these neighborhoods, not just a few of them. And then we're going to subsidize it in a, in a certain way, basically. And now who wants to run it for the next four years? And please, it's a tender process. Please tell us if you can do that. But it's only been confined to bikes, really, and, and not yet been going into these yeah, micro-transit services or, or also other modes of transportation. Very interesting because it is sometimes considered a public good. And then, I guess, do you see large regional differences maybe within the U.S. or also internationally between to what degree cities do take an active role in this? Or do you think it's quite universal that more or less in most places cities would consider this involvement part of their mandate? I think globally what we've seen is a lot of reaction to the private sector, as you mentioned. More mm -hmm. Concerns about lack of access to data, concerns sometimes about services showing up and not complying with existing regulatory or policy structures. And so with time, I think the public sector has, has, has started to think, you know, these are probably going to be part of our transportation system going forward. How can we work with them, but also make sure that The partnership is win-win. Mm -hmm. It doesn't result in the public sector giving up its access to rights-of-way to the private sector without anything in return, without data, without protections of personal privacy, data of individuals. So I think there's a lot of conversation around this happening globally. Is What's the role of the public sector now? that the private sectors really entered in to the space that was very carefully regulated up to about mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. What do you think is probably the bottleneck along the way from maybe yeah, an old school model that maybe has some limited public transportation into some areas and more on fixed schedule towards some more fully integrated, essentially it's a very high service level for 
most if not all residents of a city in terms of availability, accessibility. What are the steps along the way and where's typically the bottleneck? Is it that, for example, where cities can describe that vision, but then don't find you know, private partners who want to deliver into that or, or, or privates are resistant and so on? Where's the, what are the typical steps along the way and where do cities get stuck at the moment? Because we don't necessarily see these kind of visions of a city front end that shows you all the options, maybe in a way that's prioritized towards policy goals and then yeah, equally accessible across different processes. And that's not typically the case anywhere that, anywhere that I know. Where, where do we currently get stuck along the way? Yeah, I think a lot of the private sector companies entered into these denser urban areas to begin with, sort of that mm-hmm. coastal phenomenon that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's where there's more competition. That's where you have more of these fixed route services operating and more opportunities for negative externalities to arise because is there enough space <laughs> to physically accommodate all of these transportation network on-demand companies, scooter companies alongside public transit, the buses, the trains, the trams, mm-hmm. all of this. And so I think there's a different type of issue in those areas that that we're dealing with in contrast to, to the less dense areas that I think the private sector could be much more complementary to more limited transit environments, for example. And a lot of people think about the role of these apps, mobility as a service, mobility on demand, as potentially being a tool to help sort out the conflicts that can arise by time of day, by a lot of vehicles being on the road in the denser areas and trying to understand, for example, with data, what modes should be allowed to enter into certain areas of those dense urban cities at what times of day and how could such a platform be used not just to manage the system from a public sector perspective, but to push information, the correct information from a supply and demand perspective to, for example, the drivers of an Uber or a Lyft or the users to to create an optimal supply and demand mix, right? And that's where the data comes in and is really crucial. But when we, we go outside that urban core to suburbs or to exurban areas, what we see, I think, is the companies entering more more slowly into those areas, finding it more challenging to make a profit because you don't have that density, but perhaps the greatest opportunity to create an ecosystem. And I think where we get stuck is, can those companies be profitable in those less Mm -hmm. dense areas? And what's the role of policy for example, incentives to, to help bring those companies in or reduce those costs to create a more robust ecosystem in those less dense areas. And in places like the U.S., not everything is New York City or San Francisco or L.A. We have a lot of places that are more suburban in nature. And I know you have this in Germany as well, mm-hmm. where 
we don't have 24-hour public transit access or the, the headways, the wait times are just too long to make public transit viable. How can the ideas of the private sector or the information technology come into those suburban areas to make something like a microtransit a much more viable and cost-effective form of public transit than an empty bus riding around with no passengers in it? And so, so there are different problems to solve based on land use in the built environment that I think are quite challenging. First mile, last mile to public transit has always been an issue. And now we have a lot more choices in this ecosystem that we can look at, including like, for example, the e-bikes. E-bikes are really exciting because they can go further distances. Mm. And when we look at the, the data, we've done several studies on this, you see that there's different type of trip purposes and the trips are much longer with mm. e-bikes. So what role could they play in these areas that, that are less dense? And these new form factors could help to fill in some of the gaps based on where you are with respect to time of day and spatial distribution. Mm-hmm. So the way that um, could basically grow, if I understand you correctly, kind of most of the potentialists are not necessarily in the in the urban core, but more where public transit has a harder time to reach everybody. And then there is inefficiency. You mentioned maybe empty buses going around and so on. And a conversation could be maybe as a city, as a public transit operator, here's the budget that I have. Here are policy goals, basically, that I have, like maximum service level for uh, or uh, most um, re- uh, number of residents or so. And then what are what are ideas that would lead to use technology that's now available to increase this? But within that is maybe this, uh, you mentioned several times now, microtrends, so more dynamically routed, smaller vehicles. But let's talk a little bit about also newer emerging vehicle types, not even all the way to an autonomous vehicle, but, but in between. How important is that? What do you see coming there? So everybody went on a, on a kick scooter right in the last two, three, um, four years. And that's kind of a funny experience and sometimes maybe more for yeah, a really short distance in very protected environments. But that's kind of like a extreme form of a lighter electric vehicle. It's in there. I think there is a lot in between. Last week I was in Amsterdam and it's one of the kind of very well-off progressive cities in, in Europe and you see golf cart-like vehicles zipping around <laughs> everywhere by very hip people, basically. How is our urban landscape going to change also in terms of the form factor going forward? Is that is that really a thing? Is that serious or are those just a few people? <laughs> I don't know, very, very early adopters, very experimental. Yeah, great comments. Um, I'd like to just revisit one thing about okay. the the core idea, you know, the dense urban core. I would say shared mobility still has a lot of potential in the dense urban core, but we have a lot more challenge in terms of dealing with the environmental factors, the greenhouse gas emissions, the congestion. I think there there's a lot of gaps that can be filled, for example, late at night and with active forms of transportation. So I do think there's a lot of opportunity in suburban locations where people don't have a lot of options outside of private vehicle ownership. Okay, so the new form factors. There's a lot coming. It's going to be really exciting. And 
As you probably know, innovation is not equally and uniformly distributed. So it's going to start in some cities and it can grow. One of the the things that I saw grow the most dramatically in my career, just spanning over 25 years in shared mobility now, is bike sharing. And what what I witnessed was one city would be a lightning rod for other cities. Like, you know, Lyon in France, and then Belize in Paris. And then what you would start to see is this explosion of these public bike sharing systems across the globe, and then dockless. So I, I think the same with the new form factors. If a particular city can re-examine its land use and built environment and show positive social and environmental benefits by shifting to new form factors, smaller, lightweight vehicles, other cities will follow. That I think we, we can count on. But as you start to electrify particularly lighter weight vehicles or smaller vehicles, we have to be really concerned about safety. And that's one of the issues that came about with the e-kick scooters mm-hmm. was do people know how to ride these? Are they sturdy enough? Is the infrastructure built in a way to help support public safety? If we're going to move more towards slower vehicles and more active forms of transportation, if we're interested in carbon neutrality, we really need to go in this direction. But I think we've got to be really careful that as we introduce these vehicle systems, automation can help with the safety for sure. But we've got to be really careful about pedestrian interactions and and public safety because people can get hurt. And, and we have seen that as we start to electrify scooters and bikes. Mm. What do you think from a high-level perspective, how far we are in the adoption of these? So I think we are one of the tech companies providing technology for operators to, to run people I interact with most in the, on a daily basis. Our operators somehow, we see growth rates. And sometimes phenomenally year on year, but yet it's coming from a very small base. And if you zoom out and you talk to maybe transportation planners, then they'll be like, okay, this is a new phenomenon. But by and large, let's not make a mistake. In Germany, 30, 40% of the trips and cities are on, on public transport. Another 30% is on, is on cars. This is all still very minuscule. What order of magnitude are we talking about from, from your research, from your insights that we are at? right now with the adoption of these newer forms of shared mobility, not public transport, but the newer ones. And and how do you see that evolve? What role do they really play from a city planning perspective in the next few years? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're clouded in a lot of uncertainty right now as mm-hmm. we recover from COVID. As I mentioned early, we we saw a lot of people wanting to buy electric bikes or bikes or scooters. We saw cities responding by providing more access to rights away. How much of this is going to stick as we come back? How much will people gravitate back to public transit? What impact will telework or work from home have on the demand for public transit? alongside other forms of transportation. 
And so I don't think it's going to be equally distributed in Germany or in the US. I think some of this is going to be driven by external forces. Like, what do the companies decide to do? You know, we, we don't have a clear picture of that yet. And there's been a number of stories, Gunnar, here in the US about employees pushing back, about going back to the office. So when you think about just that interplay, how does that play out? And, and what does that mean for public transit ridership, for car ownership, for these new form factors? But what I can tell you is in the US, there's dramatic increase in shared micromobility trips. Like between 2010 and 2019, we saw over 340 million shared micromobility trips in that 10-year period. And it just looks like something that people are really keen to have part of their mobility package. But how does the city respond? Does this re- the city respond by creating those spaces, by introducing pricing policies, by zoning out single occupant vehicles or privately owned vehicles? How does the government respond? I think we'll have a lot to do with which forms of shared mobility are more popular and where. And if the government stands down and just lets the private sector dominate, we're going to potentially end up with a very different future than if the government steps in and says, this is the kind of reality we want to create. And now that people are teleworking more and and traveling in different ways, how can we tame the private auto, right? That's one scenario. Another scenario is everybody goes out, buys a bunch of used cars, which we saw in the US. Yeah, this happened to you as well. To take public Mm -hmm. transit anymore Mm -hmm. or or walk or cycle or take those shared micromobility modes. What role do you see the legacy companies, the, the big OEMs stay in office? Because that was so interesting for me. I'm looking more at maybe about 10 years in, in the space, not as long as you mentioned. But even in this shorter time, I've seen sort of some pivots over there. There were companies that was like the big thing to have the new mobility division and kind of verbal commitments made in this direction. Then a new CEO comes around. And for example, in the case of BMW, he would say to his team, look, we are an airplane manufacturer, not an airline. I'm, I'm not convinced about becoming a service company, for example. And they go in different directions and it sometimes seems undecided. And they, they could change again with the next switch of CEO. Mm-hmm. This kind of future, and it's a common theme, and you just brought it up about pushing back the individual car. This is still becoming a consensus on a, on, a, on a planning, on a conceptual level. And then in the day-to-day, it's often we revert into the car because it is the most convenient, it's already paid for and so on. But who are the companies on the OEM side that are really pushing forward and, and who is more un, undecided? And do you worry about them in this future or do you think they will also stand to benefit? I'm not worried about the auto manufacturers as a, as a category moving forward because they're the vehicle supplier. A lot of people who provide the IT, the apps, even the automation technology, right? They, they have to have a, a physical platform. Mm-hmm. So if you're not producing the vehicle itself, that may be more worrisome. And I think the automakers know that. I agree with you. The autos rushed into 
not just the idea of sharing. And some didn't rush into this. Like Daimler didn't rush into this. I've been working Mm -hmm. with Daimler in different forms, starting with Daimler-Benz since the Mm -hmm. 1990s on these Mm -hmm. concepts. So to many of these companies, this is not new. What I think it a lot of people externally perceived was that it was new. But a lot of them were toying with these ideas, testing Mm -hmm. these ideas for a very long time. With a a lot of the tech companies entering in and disrupting the space, say about 12 years ago, and attracting a lot of venture capital money, this brought, I think, a feeling of, oh my gosh, are we behind? What, What do we stand to lose? Do we stand to lose something? And I think a lot of the companies wanted to acquire that knowledge of on-demand mobility, of those mobility patterns. So you can see that many of them partnered with some of these companies or provided these services themselves and started Mm -hmm. to develop that expertise internally. Mm -hmm. We also saw that a lot of them pivoted heavily towards automation because there was also a very significant hype cycle around, okay, by 2020, 2025, nobody's going to drive a car anymore. They're all going to be automated. And I think a lot of that hype is starting to to peel back. It doesn't mean there isn't really exciting stuff going on in the automated world. I think there's tremendous development in lower levels of automation, not full driverless automation. And I also think that the automakers have their eye on electrification. And so you think about your core competency is to produce vehicles, either battery electric vehicles or propulsion-based petroleum vehicles. That's their core competency. And so as the automakers looked at reduced auto sales just a few years ago globally, have to start figuring out, are we going to have three core competencies or are we going to have one core competency which is very pressing, which is the electrification of our system. We're moving to electric drive, including hydrogen. And so I think what you started to see was, okay, we need to back out of some of these investments because we can't do it all. And that's, I think, where we stand. Now, some are entering more slowly back into, I think, the automated space. We've, I've been seeing some motion in that. I I wouldn't be surprised to see them enter more into sharing as well. But I, I really think what you saw with the OEMs was there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of VC money. <laughs> and now I think the reality of the economics of on-demand mobility is becoming much more clear. It may not be a sustainable business model. It may not be that easy to automate these vehicles and take out the labor costs and make it sustainable. So where does the OEM fit in? And their competency is to to manufacture vehicles. Mm -hmm. And when you say it might not be a sustainable business model, what comes to mind to me again is like our discussion from earlier of the the role of cities and the public good. It may not be profitable in all cases to provide this public good, basically. And what do you think in, in light of all of this sort of the OEMs adventures in the space. There was the, the hype time, the, a lot of VC funding now. It's all taking a bit longer than, um, than, than planned, even though it's, it's growing. It's still in the grand scheme of things. 
not the dominant way to, to get around. What do you think going forward about the role of regional players versus kind of a consolidation in this space with the diversity of cities out there and use cases and yeah, a lot of very local regulation? Do you think providing also shared mobility on the ground will be a very local business that, that hundreds of thousands of companies do globally? Or do you see this more consolidating like some other services have consolidated under some brands? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say, for example, if I go back to the earliest form of shared mobility that I've worked on, which is car sharing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea you go into and out of the same location, rent the vehicle, access the vehicle, sort of the zip car model, right? There was a time there were many, many operators in Germany, Switzerland, throughout North America. And slowly, there was a consolidation into a number of key players, most of which not all, most of which had strong connections to the private sector, if, if not being the private sector mm -hmm. itself. Is that, is that experience going to be translatable or something that we see, for example, in shared micromobility, transportation network companies, microtransit courier network services? I think the wild card for me would be more the active transportation modes Mm -hmm. The shared micromobility, the e-scooters, the the e-bikes, the bikes. You know what we've seen globally is a whole lot of flavors of how shared micromobility is provided, ranging from completely public sector funded and deployed to private sector outsourcing. I'm not sure that's going to consolidate as much because the capital costs of a bike or a scooter are much lower. It's, it's more within reach to be able to provide those services. But when you start to get into the capitalized cost, it, it becomes harder to envision how the public sector would would do that with the exception of say microtransit, like a larger mm -hmm. scale van or shuttle. The peer-to-peer -peer based model is, is uh, special, right? It's, it's both mm -hmm. a dual sided market. It's a supply and demand side market. All signals so far suggest that that's, that market has already kind of consolidated the transportation network company market. When you look around the globe, there's, there's either a monopoly or a duopoly in many regions of the world there. In, in so, right healing. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's not something that I think we can say shared mobility is going to consolidate to one or two operators across this entire ecosystem. I don't think we can say that. But I do think that with the fuller-sized vehicles, we have seen some of this private sector consolidation with the car sharing, the ride hailing types of companies. But I'm, I'm less sure we're going to see that on a regional or localized basis with more active forms of transportation. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there are some of these new form factors that are smaller, lighter mm -hmm. weight, and have lower capital costs. Mm 
Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. And I, I'm glad you said that because effectively that's what we're betting on as a company basically is to have the technology, technology to host this long tail of vehicle sharing operators of the bike sharers, cargo bike, uh, scooters, mopeds, maybe these newer light electric vehicles that they are in many cases also in our client base, local business, businesses or business owners, either a public utility offer, smaller city or people who run hotels, for example, and now do this in addition, or who are a big local car dealer and now also get into this space. So I think, but that's the billion dollar question in a way for some people, how, how this will I think the, the transition is happening in this direction. A lot of people are going to fulfill their transportation needs, not with their own owned uh, car necessarily, or on a very classic public transport, but with sort of more flexible ownership models, vehicles that are provided to them. But will these all come from sort of yeah, a few international players or be somehow yeah, integrated into local solutions run by local business people also? That is really an open question still at the moment. So it's fascinating mm-hmm. on the one hand that you're also saying that, that is the wild card. So it's 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 unknown, but definitely you can differentiate between some parts of this shared mobility that more likely to go this way or have already to some extent and others that are that are less likely. So it's a very uh yeah. I was just going to say, I think that the important thing for us to to maybe think about is the role of policy. Mm-hmm. It, does policy pick winners or losers? Or winners and losers? Does policy create an even playing field for all players in the shared mobility ecosystem? We've seen time and time again that that ecosystem is not an even playing field. And so in some ways we create market failures and we pick winners and losers. So as policymakers become more familiar and knowledgeable of shared mobility, its positives, its negatives, and how to balance it, I think they will have more control over what type of ecosystem exists. If it's dominated by a single operator, in a single platform, or if it's a much more diverse and robust system. They have a lot of, of measures through policy that can be employed to create a mobility system that either prioritizes the public good or prioritizes private sector capital. I totally agree. And my hunch, but I haven't really done the research on this, I should be careful, but my impression is that the the bottleneck why why some cities don't transition to yeah, exploiting all these options more more fully faster is more the lacking vision than actually that if, if you would describe this is where we would like to move the city in, in 10 years and this is what's important to us this is maybe a budget that we have available now we need private sector ideas initiatives who can provision parts of this they would receive a lot of input and options but i think that Vision piece, because it's also politically contested, that is difficult to formulate sometimes. I've been in some conversations here, again, not like representative and not, not really a study done, but where they become very careful to paint that vision too clearly because then it will always result in some people liking and some, some not liking. And that sort of vague vision kind of prevents you from moving faster, where I think technology is definitely available. And there's a lot of budget available in public transport as well. So, and that combination of fueling some of the solutions around the edges where maybe it wouldn't be profitable 
in return for being able to operate also those parts that are very profitable. I think that could lead to much better outcomes, but it would take somebody to formulate exactly what, what you need that, that you're asking people to bid into, for example. I think that's uh, maybe sometimes not the, not the case. Seems to be kind of a challenge to be too specific there and then maybe throw some people off. So that's just my own observation from <laughs> not representative. It was super fascinating to talk to you in depth about these topics. Like really, really uh, helpful, really uh, great. Fascinating to see how you describe this all as one coherent system that a lot of basically policies probably asked around where this should go. It's not um, sort of an, a natural evolution just by itself. It is a political question in some areas, messing in a way with what is often considered a public good. And um, very yeah, great to get this uh, insight from you. Thanks a lot for taking the time out of your day and speaking to us today. And I hope that once the whole travel restrictions are lifted and it's easy and normal to meet in person again, we also get a chance to connect in person one of these days. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It was delightful to, to spend my morning with you, Gunnar. Thank you. Mm-hmm.